This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Now, in these times of reckoning with racist policies and police misconduct and with mass incarceration, many in our country have been asking, how can we fix this? My next guest is someone who knows the ins and outs of the U.S. judicial system well and is working to do her part. Andrea Lyon is a criminal defense attorney, former public defender and author of the new book, Fixing Legal Injustice, the case for a Defender General of the United States. Now, in the book, Andrea explains what is wrong with the criminal justice system through her client's stories and historical perspective. And she makes the case for the need for reform at the center of the system, not just its edges. She joins me now. Andrea, welcome back to Reset and great to have you in the studio. Oh, thank you so much for having me and nice to actually meet you in person. Yeah, so I want to dive right in. This is this is an interesting book. You you open it with the story of Daryl Thurston who was your client, sort of, Ish. Yes. sort of. Uh, he represented himself, but you were assigned as his backup counsel and got to know him pretty well. So tell us more about Daryl and what he said in court one day that caught your attention. Well, he um, he was charged with a number of drug charges um, and he had a criminal record and he also was pretty charming. So he wanted to represent himself. He thought he would do a better job of communicating with the jury, which turned out to be true. Um, without being subject to cross-examination. Um, it, he was kind of clever. But what, what he said, uh, and he was acquitted of the, of the, quote, heavier charges, the heavier drugs, but was convicted of the marijuana charges. Yeah. And at sentencing, he basically said to the judge, you know, you all ought to thank me. And the judge just kind of looked at him with incredulity, you know, and his usual contempt for defendants anyway. Um, but anyway, he looked at him that way and so what do you mean? He says, listen, I'm the reason all of y'all got a job. And I looked around and I realized, here's this African-American man charged with a drug offense that didn't hurt anybody, and it's employing a judge, white, two prosecutors, white, public defender, a standby counsel, white, police officers, white. I mean, you could just see. He was the only one in the room. Yes, how does the U.S. dig out from this mass incarceration cycle that's been so severely impacting the lives of so many black and brown people, men especially? Like, there's just been so much damage. There has been a lot of damage. And I think one of the things that people don't even realize is how many white men have also been impacted who are poor. This is really as much as anything else an economic issue, but it is a holdover of um, our our failure to reckon with our original sin of slavery and, uh, frankly, of colonization and of what we've done to Native Americans as well. Mm-hmm. The, the reason that I'm advocating for a defender general is that if what we keep doing is responding to whatever is the bright and shining issue of the moment, the crack cocaine versus powder cocaine disparity, for example, um, not that that's nothing. I'm not saying it's nothing. But if all we do is is just go at the edge, there, you know, this is not fair, so let's fix this one little thing. Mm-hmm. We are never, ever going to deal with the issues at the center of it, which are actual representation of people who are poor with adequate resources, dealing with the racial impact of, um, you know, of the system as it has existed thus far, talking about doing something proactively in communities instead of waiting with Band-Aids later on. And none of that is ever going to happen if no one is ever at the policy table to speak for the accused and the poor. And there never has been. 
In Fixing Legal Injustice, you suggest that we should create an office of the Defender General of the United States, which you just mentioned. Uh, You said to give it the same level of importance as the Attorney General and the Solicitor General. Give us some specifics. What would this new office look like in practice? Like, What would a Defender General do exactly? Well, there would be a number of areas. Um, First of all, it, it would be part of all policy decisions, at least at the federal level. Right now, if uh, someone wants to pass a ball, uh, a bill, rather, I'm sorry, um, you know, the government accounting office has to talk about how expensive it's going to be or where the money's going to come from. That's just a requirement. There should be a requirement that any criminal justice related statute should also have to be analyzed by the Defender General of the United States. We need to be in in the room. Um, The only people that are ever in the room are prosecutors, police, and politicians. We've never been there. If anyone like me had been around in 1994, we could have told them exactly what the heck would happen with the 1994 crime bill and with the 1996 EDPA. We we would have known and we knew and we, we talked about it, but no one was listening because we're not at the table. So that would be one place. Another important place would be to represent the interests of the poor and the accused in courts. I don't mean that we would do direct representation, but that when there's an issue pending before the United States Supreme Court or other, you know, uh, Supreme Courts of states that impacts what happens to criminal defendants and their communities, that we would be in a position to file a a, a what's called an amicus brief, friend of the court brief, Mm -hmm. the way that the Solicitor General does now on behalf of the government. Thirdly, we would need to work to do something about the terrible system of representation and how it exists now. And the way that I envisioned that we would do that would be by incentivizing uh, training and and uh, incentivizing better caseloads. Uh, Sasha, and when I, when I was in the public defender's office in felony courtroom, I personally had 220 felonies at any given time. Personally. Wow. And I I really, I promise you, I work hard. I care what happens to my clients. But I know, I know I screwed over people, not because I wanted to, but because there's only so many hours in the day. And you can't do everything. And so you end up triaging. And that means that injustices go unaddressed, especially in what the system tends to look at as relatively unimportant cases. It's just a burglary. You have tried more than 130 homicide cases, more than 30 of which were potential capital cases. Of those 30 clients, 19 were convicted and found eligible for the death penalty. You and your team prevented all of them, all 19, from being sentenced to death. I know you've been asked this a million times, so I want to hear your response. What made you represent the accused? What made you want to do that? I think I've always been someone who wants to stand up for the underdog. Um, it's just kind of part of my personality. But I, I, I went to law school as a result of the civil rights movement, and I wanted to affect and help individuals who are at the wrong end of, of, of our government and of our policies and of our history. Um, and there are lots of ways to do that. I'm not saying being a criminal defense lawyer is the only one, but it was the one where I felt my my talents and my drive were uh, were best suited. Um, what do you say to those who believe the criminal justice system is working just fine? I tell them that they're not they're not in part affected by it personally it, because if they're if you don't know, then you don't know. You have no idea what happens once someone's arrested. You have no idea 
how traumatizing it is to be stopped again and again and again just for walking in the wrong skin. And you don't know the effects of seeing violence around you all the time. And um, it's not that people who don't understand that are bad people for not understanding it. It's that they need to understand it, which means we need to tell more stories and we need to be listened to more. And the only way to do that is to make us a part of our government in a way we never have been. There's a book, uh, there's a word that comes up a lot throughout your book, Andrea, trust. You mentioned that so much. Talk more about that client counsel relationship and why it is imperative for a defender to win their trust. So when when you're representing somebody, it's a very personal relationship. And that person needs to trust that you will do the work that you said you're going to do, that you're going to tell them the truth about the strength and weakness of the case, the good news, the bad news, and the middle news, and that you see them as more than a, a case. They're a person who have a family and who have feelings and whose feelings matter. This is not always this client-centered perspective is uh, is one that many of my colleagues share, but unfortunately, many of them do not. Mm-hmm. Um, and in part, that's because uh, being a public defender or taking assigned cases, um, you know, through the court system isn't doesn't pay for particularly well. It is not highly regarded. Um, it is looked down on by m- many members of the bar. Um, and it's stressful. So a lot of people don't want to put themselves there. But here's the thing, Sasha Ann. I, you can't sell what you wouldn't buy. If it doesn't matter to you in a visceral way what happens to your client, believe me, the jury, the judge, and your client and his family and everyone else can see that. It'll show. It shows. And that means you have to let it matter to you. And if you let it matter to you, it's, it, it costs you. It's emotionally difficult. But I wouldn't do anything else. If you're just tuning in, I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and you're listening to Reset. And that's Andrea Lyon, who's a criminal defense attorney, death penalty expert, and author. We're talking about her latest book, Fixing Legal Injustice. You and I have talked several times over the last year or so on Reset, Andrea, about yes. uh, how the deaths of George Floyd and, and Breonna Taylor and others, how they demonstrate the way that racism is still negatively impacting the system. Is the system perhaps too far gone to be fixed? Well, um, that's kind of how the United States Supreme Court uh, dealt with it in a, in a famous slash infamous case called McCleskey versus Kemp which was a case where um, the statistics showed that a black person was four times as likely to get the death penalty in Georgia as a white person. And if the person that the black person killed was white, they were 16 times as likely. Wow. Yeah. And the Supreme Court rejected these statistics for a lot of um, technical reasons. But the real reason is in uh, former Chief Justice Rehnquist's decision um, where he says— He says, if we do something about this in the death penalty context, we're going to have to do something about it everywhere. And it is inevitable. Yeah. And there is that view that there's nothing we can do. And that is a defeatist point of view. That's just not true. People have their better angels. We all do. 
and even people with whom you or I might strongly disagree or that we might not like, who might not like us, who might not appreciate our lifestyle choices or our professions or all the rest of that, at the core, we all want a safe and just world. We do. And if we can show people how to get there without falling back on racial tropes and, 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 and all these different stereotypes that, that get in our way, yeah. people can learn. And, and I've had jurors tell me that after trial, that they were relieved I gave them the opportunity to discuss racism, believe it or not. Interesting. You know, here in Chicago, we recently learned about the exoneration of seven people convicted of murder, all connected to one former Chicago police detective, Ronaldo Guevara. Uh, An eighth person's case is still pending. This is being called the largest exoneration in the history of Cook County, Andrea. So what are your thoughts on this? Are, Are these exonerations just highlighting how much work there is left to do? Well, it does exonerate that, but it also uh, exonerate. It does exemplify that. Sorry for the uh, verbal typo there. Um, <laughs> but I, I also think that um, it, it shows the power of inertia. That is, once the police have arrested someone and they say that they confessed, whether they confessed truthfully or not, whether you find the actual killer or not, I'm thinking of a case I'm about to about to litigate where that I've actually, believe it or not, found the actual killer. Okay. And even when I've done that, getting the prosecution or the police to think about the possibility that they are wrong is so difficult. People have such a hard time saying, I'm wrong, I'm sorry. And that's a big stone to push push up a hill. So part of this is that we need to be changing cultures in terms of how we view the criminal justice system. And one of the things that's really stands in our way is the way that we pick, the way that we train, and the way that we keep police officers on the front lines too long. I want to touch on a case that you you talk about in the book, your client, Tess Andrews, who was uh, facing a first-degree murder charge in the death of her husband. Um, Many layers to her story, a tragic ending. But I was struck by your mention of uh, what it's often like for you, a woman, representing another woman in these kinds of circumstances. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Um, Of course, it's... Things that where you can see yourself hit you harder, right, for good and ill. Um, but one of the things about representing someone who's a, a battered woman is that it is inexplicable from the outside and very personal from the inside. And the the pain that you look at, the 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 trap, the cycle, yeah. Um, is is just it, it knocks you out sometimes and um, you know I had just started representing uh, what what at that time were just it's kind of a new concept the battered woman self defense issue and yeah I had been asked by a friend of mine uh, to go and do an informational meeting at the YWCA they had a meeting every I think it was Wednesday nights for um, women who were survivors yeah and um, you know, they just want to know where do you get an order of protection? How you know 
that, that kind of stuff that I could, I could answer. I could tell them what office to go to, that kind of thing. And so I, I told my friend I would help her out. And so I go there. And I knew intellectually that this happened everywhere. But knowing it and seeing it are two different things. Mm-hmm. And seeing every kind of woman, around like 40 women in there, from a 16-year-old black girl who had two children to a 57-year-old Jewish lady from the suburbs who finally left her husband when he put an ice pick through her soul, shoulder, and everything in between. And I found myself getting angry, so angry, you know? And so after I left the meeting, I'm, I'm out, I'm walking around my car talking to myself. I don't know if you ever do anything like this, but I'm walking Occasionally. Around, yeah. I'm talking to myself. I'm like, if any, you know, expletive deleted ever lifted their hand and looked like they would blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm just like stomping around. Yeah. And then I realized, wait a minute. What's bothering me isn't how different these women are, it's how alike. And I was thinking about this very handsome, gorgeous fellow that I was dating at the time. This is, you know, pre-marriage. And um, how he would call me up and say, let's have dinner Monday. And he would show up at it, you know, show up at 6, and he'd show up at 6 on Wednesday, and I'd let him. Hmm. I wonder how a defender general could have helped Tess or any situation like hers. Well, by providing resources to the defense, for one thing, um, and also by by incentivizing uh, additions to public defenders' offices that you're seeing in some larger offices now, but not not consistently. Which is there there needs to be in order to represent the human being, you need to have social work uh, resources available too. Because if the client can't keep the job, the client can't report for probation because they don't have transportation or because their mental health issues are in their way, Um, then they're going to fail and they're going to stay in the system, which is not the goal of anyone. What's the overall message that you want to stay with readers even long after they've finished your book? I want them to understand that injustice anywhere is injustice everywhere. I know that that's a, that's, that's a, common statement to make, but it, when someone is mistreated, the next person to be mistreated and no one does anything about it, the next person to be mistreated is going to be you. And people don't understand that. That's one of the things that we have seen um, with the, this terrible opioid crisis is that suddenly white people seem to know that drug addiction is a mental disease, not a failure of morality. When it's black people or Hispanic people, it's because they just don't have good morals. And that's not true. It's a mental health issue. And I don't want to see hundreds of thousands of people have to die before we can all learn that we are way more alike than we're different and that we have to do something about injustice. The United States needs a defender general we, we, we need it dis- desperately, and I, I hope that this conversation will go somewhere and that some people maybe will pay attention. Yeah, I think they will. It's criminal defense attorney and author Andrea Lyon. Her book, Fixing Legal Injustice, The Case for a Defender General of the United States, is available now. Thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Want more context on the top issues of the day? Find the podcast, WBEZ's Reset, wherever you listen.